I was still 10 years old the first time performing under Leonard Bernstein. Oh my. Yes, this was the first time he had conducted a symphony as the director of the New York Philharmonic. What is artificial intelligence? What is the role of machine learning? And the solution is clear. That solution is controlled fusion. From Orion X in association with Inside HPC, this is the At HPC podcast. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Black as they discuss supercomputing technologies and the applications, markets, and policies that shape them. Thank you for being with us. Hi, Shaheen. Good to be with you again. Excellent to be with you. We have another wonderful guest. Yeah, I'm really happy to say that we have Dr. Thomas Sterling, longtime HPC luminary and professor of intelligent systems engineering at Indiana University. Welcome, Thomas. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for letting me join you in this casual discussion about many interesting and important issues. Okay. And I should add that Thomas is also president of the startup Simultac which is focused on non-von Neumann memory-centric architectures. And he's known for his pioneering work in commodity clusters through uh, NASA's Beowulf program. So we thought we'd kick things off by looking at HPC in the global scene, Thomas. And there's sort of a ongoing debate back and forth. Is HPC, is supercomputing in general, is it a race between geopolitical players or not? Well, the simple answer is, it has been. There seems to be a natural tendency when committing and engaging in very difficult challenges to take some pride in the results. And nothing is more invigorating than competing with someone else and beating them. And <laughs> those of us who grew up during the Mercury, Gemini, Apollo age certainly understand the idea of a race. It's called a space race. However, as a race, it doesn't mean very much. It is important for different nations to maintain access to resources that can deliver very high-performance computing in everything from physical phenomena, simulations, both for science and engineering, and to bringing some aspects of machine intelligence to data science problems, as well as looking forward to the future. There are many ways that an individual or a community or a nation can contribute to these. They need not all be the same. They need not all be building the number one machine on the top 500 list or the graph 500 list or any of the other uh, benchmarks. Perhaps it's their applications that have potentially tremendous impact. So we can all be pushing forward. Ideally, we would be doing so in complementary ways, mm -hmm. and the combined capabilities and resources of the planet being used rather than everybody running Linpack. What grade would you give us in our, if not race, the effort that we're putting to advance supercomputing and science? Well, science and engineering were the original driving factors to develop new computing engines back in the first and second generation using vacuum tubes. Even at that time, very bright thinkers were considering the possibility of more intelligent computers as well. In truth, one could go back more than 100 years before that and cite Ada Lovelace as someone who considered or contemplated with her mentor, Charles Babbage, that idea. 
So in, in that sense, with the exponential growth of our technologies over the last seven decades, we have improved a technology by some metrics on the order of factors of trillions. You know, it's hard not to give that an A+. I had a question along these lines, looking at HPC in society in general. Clearly, the impact of HPC on solving or helping look for solutions for societal problems is well established. We can point to nuclear stockpile management, which was a leftover from industrial age, or looking for a vaccine or looking for solutions for climate change. But then going beyond that, do you see HPC getting applied to more of the social sciences and provide a scientific way of solving problems that haven't traditionally been purview of HPC? Almost anyone you'd be asking would be immediately talking about various forms of medicine from understanding how uh, diseases propagate throughout large populations down to molecular design in creating new medicines. All of that is true. The notion of bringing computing into what I unkindly refer to as the soft sciences or soft engineering. Yes, that's what I mean. <laughs> you know, it. we will continue to see clever people doing relatively clever things in correlating among the different humanities, understand creative process, uh, the cause and effect. Honestly, this is outside my tenor in terms of, again, humanities and soft sciences. Many mm -hmm. people will be very unhappy with that as a response. If I may add to that, however, I believe that all humanity, and I, I do not exaggerate for the following reason, is influenced dramatically by rapidly changing conditions such as poverty, climate change, and those having to do with the management uh, organization and movement of individual communities, such as the refugee problem. Let me give you just one example. For high-performance computing to solve what some consider the biggest problem that humanity faces, and that is climate change, partly because of our own doing. Mm -hmm. By the way, I remember when we crossed 400 parts per million of carbon in the uh, atmosphere, and just within the last couple of weeks, it was announced that we crossed 421 parts per million. Wow. This is scary when you realize the baseline is about 270 parts per million. We need to understand that. We need to be able to model the planet-wide, very complex, highly nonlinear, multi-physics, multi-dimensional behavior phenomena of weather and climate. And yes, it does go down to the mesoscale phenomena. We can only do that with supercomputers and new models. Right. But we also need a solution. Mm -hmm. And the solution is clear. That solution is control fusion. Control fusion, however, is also a very complicated system. Of course, there are more than one way to do it. One is by inertial confinement. And the other is magnetic confinement. This is a technology that's been pursued over more than 50 years, and bits of progress are being made. Computer simulation is essential to the design of practical control fusion. We use control fusion. That solves most, not all, of the problems related to fossil fuel atmospheric deterioration. And maybe will not just save us, but will save the hundreds of thousands, even millions of species that are in jeopardy now. Well, it's, it's interesting, Thomas, because at ISC last week, that was a topic that came up as Frontier, the supercomputer at Oak Ridge National Lab, surpassed the 
exaflop milestone. The talk was on fusion that we could be moving toward supercomputers that can simulate the entire fusion process, not just a piece of it at a time. And that could mean real progress in fusion. Yes, and indeed there are expertise in different places. There has been historically over the last recent decade pushback by fossil fuel industries to the politicians to not invest in the, during the Reagan administration, for example, there was a reduction in investment in control fusion, which was unfortunate. This is an example of high-performance computing affecting everybody. It means clean and ultimately, but not immediately, cheap energy, almost. But there are the other factors, T&D, getting it into the hands of everybody, places like Bangladesh and Central Africa, as just examples, because the needs of people have to be satisfied everywhere. And transport of goods and energy is still a major challenge. This was partially where I was going with that HPC and society thread, and that is the increasing role of science in setting or help set policy and how policy is actually impacting the development of technologies with the global geopolitical situation. So both sides of that equation are looking to become more important for scientists and engineers to participate more in setting policy and for policy to increasingly gearing towards helping advance them. I look at it more narrowly, and maybe this is irresponsible of me. It is the responsibility of high-performance computer designers, corporations, academics, and in the computer science, even at the fundamental theory level, to provide the choice space on which policy by the community as a whole can be focused. If we cannot provide a computer at a Zetaflops, then it doesn't matter what a politician is going to want to support, uh, won't be able to do that. We are enablers, enablers, we are empowerers. We can define what is possible, we can even make it possible, but ultimately policy has to be determined by those in society, whether politicians or otherwise, who understand they have a responsibility for doing things that will make society work best. And I say best because I don't have to define mm. what the criteria of best is. Yeah, Thomas, it's interesting with your title, Intelligent Systems Engineering. So you not only work in that area, but you also are a thinker in regard to the difference between intelligent machines and human intelligence. And now we increasingly see the term HPC slash AI. There's a, obviously a very commingling of the two. But in terms of where we're moving, I know you have some very interesting thoughts on artificial intelligence, the public conceptions about it, and really to what extent can machines emulate human thinking or not? Okay, thank you, Doug. That's uh, very well put because the answer is machines will not duplicate the human mental condition. And if we attempt to make that happen, in some ways, it will be really a little more than machine play acting. <laughs> but in the specific area that you just mentioned, and that is intelligence, I am confident that intelligence, as I have said, can be defined as an algorithm. And by algorithm, we mean something that is computable, something that is Turing equivalent, something that is not in any way dependent on understanding how a human being smells a flower 
or enjoys a sunset or likes listening to rock and roll. Those are emotional. They are primitive, instinctual capabilities derived far before us, indeed before mammals, and incrementally go back to the beginning of the Paleozoic. No, we are not descendants of trilobites, but they were there. So the features of intelligence are, in my mind, which may be counterintuitive, the ability of a machine not just to think, but to create, assimilate, manipulate, and apply knowledge, and to do so in a manner of state that permits exhibiting and exporting understanding. When we have a machine that understands and understands how it understands, then we will have machine intelligence. I anticipate that that is not too far off. And the only thing that's slowing it down is overall, we don't even agree on the definition of artificial intelligence. And we're a little bit too happy in deciding we've already achieved it with neural net algorithms for supervised machine learning. There's much, much more to intelligence and machine intelligence than what amounts to interpolation of training sets. Am I right that you prefer the term machine intelligence to artificial intelligence? Is that, uh, do I, I do, only because of, and maybe this is trite, but only because the term is ambiguous, as I have indicated. Artificial intelligence can be somehow an intelligence derived from an artifice, but also it can be intelligence that is artificial. That is to say, it is not real intelligence. And I disagree with that. I believe that intelligence can be defined and be real and be implemented by some future generation of computers. I particularly feel that should be done in real time. And that's because to the extent that intelligence has existed in life forms, those life forms, with the potential exception of a rock, have to be able to operate to survive in real time. But Thomas, there's a dynamic quality to intelligence at least implicitly understood, that is at odds with the precision and the boundaries that are put in place in a computer model where the data sets for which it is suitable are predefined or implicitly defined. How do you rationalize that? And can we still call it intelligence if it needs to be so precisely defined? Precisely defined doesn't mean that it's a single point. Intelligence, no doubt, exists within a multidimensional set of boundary conditions, and it's those boundary conditions and the trajectories that proceed through that space. I would fully agree with you that intelligence is not so restrictive as to be rigid in anything. One does not limit intelligence to first-order predicate calculus or theorem proving. Those are certainly elements that have value. They can distinguish under certain narrow conditions, truth and falsehood. But more often, intelligence has to work with a probabilistic set of issues. And because time is finite and space is finite, this means that intelligence has to make guesses and learn from the farther on lessons of success or failure of those guesses. So I'm in agreement with you. But I still believe it falls into an achievable space that will be implemented by advanced machines. So one thread that has been recurring is how supercomputing is fortunate to be able to 
take advantage of merchant components and put these massive systems together? And will that continue to be the case? Or will we get to a point where these supercomputers are going to be more like an aircraft carrier or a large hadron collider sort of a thing where there's really no market for them. They're more of a monument. That's very well said. I have some intuition on this. I spent a year on an aircraft carrier in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, so, And I think that the uh, metaphor uh, that Sean just uh, made of it being sort of a monumental, sort of Ozymandias-like <laughs> um, is actually a pretty good metaphor. Because it's big doesn't make it some kind of a monster or a simply useless facade. However, we are at a point where the exponential growth of semiconductor technology for digital electronics and computing, as well as the limitations of the most conventional execution models, have come to an asymptotic close. We're still in convergence. There's still room for some factors of growth or improvement and improvement in other considerations like energy and reliability. And from our language people, uh, maybe even better performance portability. So it, it, to say, you know, one doesn't want to say that history is dead. But because of where we are now, it motivates future considerations in alternative methodologies that may apply. And of course, there's a handful of uh, popular ones to discuss. Quantum computing falls into this category. There are people very anxious to think that this is moving forward at a very fast pace. There's no question that we're not learning a lot, but there's a lot of question about what a practical quantum computer will look like. The system, quantum computing system, will, for certain problems, have a very dramatic improvement in being able to perform certain algorithms, certain applications. There's a narrow set that's understood to frankly, be impossible to do any other way. There has to be a, a lesson from other classes of computing in the past, such as SIMD, and we have to take into consideration things like Amdahl's Law. Nothing right. very complicated about that, but you have to understand what the bound of performance gain is, and given that not everything that is done in computing will be done on a quantum computer with the same kind of exponential opportunity, that uh, the, the pieces of the computation that will not be so accelerated will, in fact, determine the upper bound of performance. Others are very interested in brain-inspired or neuromorphic computing ideas. It's kind of exciting, isn't it? Especially with neurons that don't fire faster than about 100 hertz individually. Yes, there are about 89 billion of them in a reasonable 1,400 cubic centimeter skull. But if we can <laughs> capture some of the unique properties of a very different kind of structure, that is to say a neuronal structure, uh, there may be chances for that. Maybe more mundane, it's a work that I and, and colleagues and uh, many within the U.S. and around the world are exploring the middle space, the space that uses uh, existing or near-term technologies, but does so in ways rather different mm -hmm. from conventional von Neumann techniques. And with problems, as we were discussing, related to intelligence and knowledge, these are memory-intensive machines. And we have opportunities to explore that space and to 
improve computing by relaxing some of the previous constraints. So today's heterogeneous computing, which includes GPUs, a fairly popular approach demonstrates using a mix of different hardware computing structures or architectures. So I'm very excited about the potential future. However, there is some friction, some contention as to where resources should be placed in regard to. There have been those who feel that it is impractical to support and drive curiosity-driven research. I disagree with that in the most extreme. Yes. But others who are very responsible have followed that path over the last, well, since the 2015 presidential executive order considering exascale computing. By curiosity-driven research, do you mean open-ended, sort of non-agenda? Non-gap-filling. There has been a strategy, much of which works under the premise that we almost know the right answer, but there are gaps. And that if we can learn to bridge those gaps, then we will have the ideal machine. And that therefore succeeding in building a future computer is one at a time filling uh, those gaps, both in hardware and software. This is incrementalism to the extreme. And it is challenged by new ideas that are not targeted at individual gaps. It is challenged by ideas that recognize that we're at a point of demarcation, as we have been many times. One could even believe that the Beowulf era with one example. I say that not intending to be self-serving, but just show a transformation from one mentality of special purpose designs of architectures, really cool machines, back in the 80s and 70s and 60s. One must not forget the CDC 6800 machine. And this is another one of those times, in my opinion, there may be colleagues who will be listening to this who will uh, strongly disagree. Fortunately, you have to deal with the letters, not me. <laughs> right. Well, it's you, you mentioned Beowulf. I recall we had a conversation a year or two ago in which you told me a very funny story. I think it was a, it was a Beowulf, some sort of a Beowulf anniversary celebration, maybe at SC, in which you were invited and many of the young people had no idea that you, a Beowulf pioneer, were in their midst. It was kind of a... Yeah, let me, let me just correct the story for those who know it. There has been an annual party at Supercomputing Conference for, and I don't know the number of years, two dozen years, maybe 26 years. I should know this, but I don't. Oh, it's been uh, going it's on referred, forever, yeah. Yeah, it's gone on forever. It's called the Beowulf Bash. It started as a beer get-together. I don't drink beer, so that didn't help. And it was a small thing, and and of course, I would attend. And it became a tradition. It would be the party after the opening party at Supercomputing, and that has occurred even to last year, where it was partly remote and partly in person. Uh, I was on Mm -hmm. remotely. The story to which you're referring, Doug, is I think it was in Texas, but I may I may have that wrong. And uh, there was a Beowulf bash set up at a nearby pub, and I um, 
I went in there and uh, nobody recognized me. <laughs> and and uh, yes, I'm being shallow when I say this, but I was a bit struck by the fact that, you know, I, I would wave my hand and nobody paid any attention. And I, I, I managed to get through the evening with enough drinks so that I came away realizing you've achieved something when that achievement remains in the minds of others, even if you, the creator of that achievement, right. did not. Right. The other part of that story was uh, two years later, and I think this might have been in Seattle. Again, same scene. I went in within a great little uh, a museum, a science museum, and you know, just casual talking with strangers. And I suddenly realized that the uh, young uh, individual with whom I was speaking was younger than the Beowulf Project. <laughs> there was never a time when there wasn't uh, Beowulf or its derivatives uh, in the lifetime of uh, that individual. And then I became realizing that an ever increasing number of those. Right. So uh, that, uh, uh, yeah, that, 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 there's a lesson there. This is a good time to ask how you got into parallel computing. Was it necessity being the mother of invention or was it a spark of inspiration? How did that happen and why this? Why not just go get some time on the local Cray or something? The answer is relatively simple. I uh, began my graduate studies at MIT in 1977. And a year later, I was asked to explore the possibility of using multiple microprocessors, which were very primitive. These were 16-bit machines at best. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah, they were barely 16-bit machines. And I would actually examine and explore the possibility of doing a domain-specific system that would uh, allow us to simulate power electronic circuits. Now, this isn't the thing that most people are interested in, but almost everyone listening uses power electronic circuits in your regulator that's powering your laptop. Mm-hmm. This is when you take one voltage, which is AC, and you convert it to another voltage or voltages that is DC. So ultimately, that technology worked. Right. And so I developed a very small computer to that effect and came to the opinion that if we want to achieve ever-increasing performance, then parallelism at uh, many levels is the possible path. Mm-hmm. I then moved from the power lab to the lab for computer science, and the rest is history, at least my history. And I've been pursuing parallel computing system architectures for about 40 years. Yes. I'm very lucky, and I thank everyone who has made it possible, that I've been able to stay focused on this as a problem, a class of problems, and a theory of problems, so that I had enough time to make all the mistakes I needed to in order to have the only thing left over, which was the right answer. Right. But it's also the power of the right insight, because mm. you were just right. And that meant that it was going to be on the right path. You know, Isn't that true also? You know, I'd like to believe that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but it, all of us who work in high-performance computing systems and parallel computing systems have to be immediately honest enough to admit that you're doing so in the context of so many other experts in yes. so many related fields, and that you're building on some of their tools and you're contributing to some of their future abilities. And so it is really an entire community, an entire culture with diversity. And I'm just glad to be 
one member among many who have been able to work and explore uh, that space of possibilities. Well, the fact that this approach that you were so instrumental in developing still being used long enough so that somebody in the field was born after you began it. <laughs> that's, that's sort of a testimony in itself. That's pretty awesome, yes. Now, the multidimensional nature of what we just talked about, and of course, you look at the entire computing stack now from semiconductor all the way to apps, also creates this complexity about skill set, about workforce, about software, open source, accessibility, education, that seems to be a pretty giant piece of the puzzle that requires constant attention. What, would, what, what grade would you give us on that front? And then what is your view on where the challenges are? Well, in some sense, it's like you're asking the student to grade his or her own paper. Um, <laughs> I have, for the last 15 years, taught a course, first-year graduate student, maybe one or two last year of their undergraduate work, Introduction to High-Performance Computing. Now, there are many books, many good books that are available on many of the topics, and many of our listeners will have those on their shelves. I felt that the challenge you've just defined is one in which a presentation of the multi-dimensions at the same time and their interrelationships and how each influences the other in terms of getting, let's say, performance, that you can't just write a parallel program. If you're looking for performance, you have to have an idea of how that program is going to run on a specific machine and the different ways in which you would cast your program. It also may be that you want an introduction to high-performance computing because you'd like to design high-performance computers. Or you'd like to do research in high-performance computing. Or you'd like to be a, an administrator in a great big data center. There are many different people who would engage in this. And so we published a textbook at the end of 2017, uh, Morgan Kaufman, mm -hmm. on this. And we're in the process of writing a second edition that tries to fill the gap. A simple way to describe it is that if you stacked up the... 13 to 15 books that you would need to read to find all the information you should have. We try to put that information into a single book right. and teach it. And I've also done, uh, partly by the way, under the support of the National Science Foundation, I did a complete set of video lectures. It's over 80 hours, eight zero hours wow, huh. of lectures, plus individual exercises, reviews, and examples done, not just by me, but but by others as well. So I guess the lowest and least interesting part of the answer to your question is students need to have access to materials that operate at and present at a rate that can be assimilated by, in fact, students without prerequisites. Right. And that's what we have attempted to do. Perfect. That's brilliant. So Thomas, I was reading through your biography some years ago, but I did refresh my memory. <laughs> And I remembered always this piece about your, let's say, very, very early career in the performing arts, <laughs> including having performed at the Carnegie Hall of all places. So that obviously is pretty hot and cool at the same time. So how did that come about and how was it like to be there? And how old were you when that happened? I was an early adolescent. I had the interesting but good fortune to be a member of a high-quality choral group uh -huh. 
it was um, hosted or homed at one of the more famous churches in New York City. But it was a professional choral group as well that performed under a number of different venues and purposes. And I guess I was not, I was still 10 years old. Oh, wow. The first time performing under Leonard Bernstein. Oh, my. Yes. This was the first time he had conducted a symphony as the director of the New York Philharmonic. So I was just one of a choral group in the back row doing the uh, the parts of this uh, Mahler uh, symphony that required such things. What an extraordinary experience for a young man to be on the other side of the baton, uh-huh. not in the audience, <laughs> and to be surrounded by a 120-piece orchestra totally immersed into it. Wow. It was a wonderful experience and highly influential. And there were multiple different performances at Carnegie Hall in those years. And then the New York Philharmonic moved to Lincoln Center, which had just been completed, (laughs) and Avery Fisher Hall. And we did, uh, again, in the same role, we had the opportunity to do several pieces in uh, Lincoln Center as well. But I would like to add one other piece. So, you know, Carnegie Hall, right? How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice. (laughs) Uh, But there was another professional orchestra, much, much smaller, called the New York Pro Musica. And what was exceptional Uh about this is it had a scholarly charter, Mm. which was to extract, to acquire pre-Baroque music. (laughs) This is, you know, Bach would be the newest, the most radical. And you had to go backwards into Gregorian chant using, in almost every case, these were music done under religious auspices back in the 16th, mm-hmm. 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. And for a child to be exposed to something which is admittedly an acquired taste, like Gregorian chant and other such forms of music, by the way, using instruments which were period instruments. Wow. They were copies of them. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, and then my voice changed, <laughs> and oh, I can't even hold the tune now. So you went into technology. Well, how wonderful to have had the experience. Yeah. Yes, indeed. <laughs> right. So you were destined for greatness, Thomas, from that early age, you know? Ten-year-old Carnegie Hall, wait for this brand-new Lincoln Center. Okay, let's go perform there, too. That is so cool. I'm, I love it. It, it is cool, but I really benefited from the cultural aspects of it at a time when uh, experience is really the greatest teacher. Yes. Well, in Leonard Bernstein, the so charismatic and inspiring, just uh, that must have been a great experience just to be around him. Well, it was extraordinary, except the time during a rehearsal, and this was in Lincoln Center, and I was standing near the timpani, and a couple of musicians there were talking quietly, and Bernstein heard it, got very angry, and threw his baton at them. Oh! Now, these are handmade batons with very special weights, and it shattered. Wow. And so I was watching this. So that was a little frightening. On the other hand, I remember giving Bernstein, when he had a sore throat, I happened to have some throat lozenges with me. Uh-huh. Uh, and so he, he would come to me when he needed a throat loss. Excellent. <laughs> so that made me feel important. <laughs> Very cool. Well, should we close with maybe a question about your keynote last week? Maybe the response you've gotten to it? Yes, certainly. First, let me simply say it is an honor to have had the opportunity to give the closing keynote at ISC. Nothing I take for granted. It's even more of an honor because, well, 
they have invited me to do this for the last 19 years. Mm -hmm. And I always expect them to ask me not to come. (laughs) Uh, But that hasn't happened yet. This is a very difficult year. It's a difficult year because, well, we haven't been together face-to-face for three years. It's a difficult year because, frankly, it's a difficult world right now. It's a difficult time for our field because of the excitement of getting to the level of exaflops R max. And I, by the way, I like that database as long as we don't misinterpret the meaning of the information. Yes. And then there is a lot of controversy as how to go forward, how to invest limited dollars, what is artificial intelligence, what is the role of machine learning in artificial intelligence, and what are the challenges for more conventional computing that nonetheless has not been achieved, such as we discussed earlier, control fusion and climate modeling. What do we need to be able to master those for near future generations, frankly, to, can I say this, to save the world, Mm -hmm. at least the world as we know it? So I had to speak to that, and that was very hard. Very exciting to be able to say great things about the Frontier machine at Oak Ridge National Lab. I'm delighted. It is great to be able to communicate how much important work was done with Fugaku in Japan over the last small number of years. It was really delightful to be able to put together a narrative about how European maturity and momentum have expanded so dramatically as they become ever-increasing players in all aspects of high-performance computing. Applications, certainly, system tools, yes, but also moving towards deployment of large-scale systems and eventually devised through their own sources of technology. I was worried about upsetting many people (laughs) because there are many well-intentioned agendas and many trade-offs and necessary competitions as to how resources will be put together. And there is no happy answer. If you put all the money in one place, such as we did with the Large Hadron Collider, it's a concentration of mass. That's great. But you're not going to have a, 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 a synchrotron in every other of the 27 countries in the EU or 50 states in the U.S., Uh, If you spread the money out, well, maybe everybody will have a a Beowulf cluster, but we'll never get a one exaflops RMAX machine that can do computations that cannot be done any other way. So there is no single obvious right answer. And everyone has to understand and feel, appreciate the role that they play in this truly grand scheme of human advancement that is unprecedented in the uh, space of human technology over the last, let me pick, uh, 10 to 12,000 years. I'd say that recognizing that stone axes have been used for about two and a half million years. (laughs) I I don't want anyone to think I don't know my prehistory. But (laughs) this is an extraordinary tool that is advancing us in truly nonlinear growth fashion. This is also threatening, of course, to others. And we have to find ways not only to make it not threatening, but to address their problems as well. And so this has impact on the human or the societal aspects of uh, the application of science and engineering to 
humanity. Yeah, it's um, great that in this milestone year for supercomputing, A, that we were all able to get together again at ISC, and we will at, at SC, but also that you were the one who added your insights and wisdom based on your decades of experience in this industry, in this uh, in the community. So it was a, a great a great talk. Yeah. So I try to ask people about, okay, it obviously went over well. Why? And um, I was hoping to hear, well, your explanations were brilliant. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, one person who was there and listened to the whole thing said, well, truthfully, you could have said anything. They were just waiting for your next joke. <laughs> <clears throat> and there and, were some and, good ones. And so. I didn't... I, I didn't find that entirely satisfying, <laughs> but worse than that was, well, you know, you're old and there are a lot of people there because they think you're not going to live to give the next one <laughs> and they want to be there for your last one. Well, I, I, I didn't like that either. Um, I think that enough people appreciated that it resonated, though some indeed brought up other topics that, that I simply didn't have time to discuss in detail. And I will do so if invited to uh, do this again next year. Well, we'll look forward to that. But, but you know, in all seriousness, uh, myself and many others that I know really look forward to your specific interpretation of what all happened this past year mm -hmm. and your brand of thinking about this and synthesizing all the different things. And that's really highly valuable. And I'm personally very grateful to have the opportunity to hear it. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. And I uh, appreciate being allowed to do that. I try very much to bring objectivity, clarity, and inclusiveness to such presentations as is possible. And I've almost done this well all year, but it's tough. It's tough. I felt very good afterwards. <laughs> yes, yes. I think there is a lot of... Uh, you know, what I call intellectual heavy lifting that takes place for a talk like this. You know, it's not, uh, you know, every word is thought through. And I think that's part of why I look forward to it. So, yeah. Well, that's sure. very kind of you. Yeah. And I, I thank you both for this opportunity as well. Well, you know, we try to squeeze three, four hours worth of conversation and insight into, let's say, fewer minutes. And I think we've succeeded quite a bit, but I do look forward to the next opportunity to <laughs> delve into some of the other topics that we talked pre-show, but not during the recording. Understood. And I would be delighted to have an opportunity to participate, if it makes sense. People, you, you two and others, bringing material out and available, allowing people to think in different ways and be exposed to different ideas. This is an important thing that you are doing, and I thank you very much. Thanks so much, and thanks for being with us today. That's it for this episode of the At HPC podcast. Every episode is featured on InsideHPC.com and posted on OrionX.net. Use the comment section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics of discussion. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The At HPC podcast is a production of OrionX in association with InsideHPC. Thank you for listening.